Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm doing excellent. It's good to hear. So this is the second episode in a two-part series called The Eyes Have It. In our last episode, we talked about the connection between Wilson disease and copper deposition, the infamous Kaiser Fleischer ring. For this episode, Tony's going to talk about something else that deposits in or around the eye, bilirubin. Yeah, so uh, you know, unlike the Kaiser Fleischer ring, which uh, I don't think any of us have actually seen in our patients, am I remembering that correctly, guys? You, neither of you guys, have seen Kaiser Fleischer rings. Is that I have not. Okay, yeah, yeah. Just, my, my, I want to make sure that my memory isn't so bad that I don't recall that. Yeah, and I've certainly <laughs> never seen it. Um, but I, I also uh, suspect that all of us have seen icterus or jaundice of the eye. Uh, and in fact, I think most students, you know, once they're on the wards, you know, either on a surgical rotation or a medical rotation, even just for a few weeks, have seen that. Does that seem right to you guys? That seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, I think probably pretty early on. (laughs) It's a pretty common physical finding. I would say so, unfortunately. Okay, so I have seen this physical exam finding probably most of my career in medicine, and I have probably not really thought twice about it before. So what made you think twice about it? It's got to be at least somewhat more straightforward than the flow dynamics of the anterior or the anterior chamber that Avi gave us in the last uh, the last eyes have it. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to be going over f- uh, flow dynamics in this episode. Um, it, it, thankfully for me, <laughs> maybe others uh, are going to be a little bit disappointed. Um, so I guess my interest in icterus, if you want to call that, um, was peaked um, on physical diagnosis rounds when I was a chief resident. So for many years, Brian Hoffman, who is now an emeritus professor of medicine uh, and is actually one of my first and most important mentors, he ran these rounds. So he would take rotating medical students from the affiliate hospitals, affiliate medical schools, and on their clinical clerkships every week, he would take them around to see patients. And even though it wasn't part of my job responsibility, I would often join him uh, because he was a master educator and he was the kind of clinician that would offer insights that you couldn't really find in a textbook. And so I found it valuable to just observe him teaching on rounds. And so on one of these rounds, we were seeing a patient with jaundice. And one of the students noted that the patient had, quote unquote, scleral icterus. And Dr. Hoffman um, told the group that it isn't actually the sclera that become icteric. And instead, it's the overlying conjunctiva. And when he mentioned this, it absolutely blew me away because obviously I had been saying from the time of a, a third year clerk myself, you know, scleral icterus, scleral icterus. And so I began teaching the point and some of the other points that Dr. Hoffman made myself over the years. And there were like a few times after this that I, I tried to independently confirm what he had said and I'd take a brief look, but I, I didn't really take a deep dive until a couple of years ago. Frankly, once I started writing tutorials, I said, all right, now's the time to like find out if Dr. Hoffman was you know pulling my chain pulling our chain uh and then post something about it yeah i mean this this is like blasphemous like what it's not it's not scleroelectris no no but are, apparently I, it's I, not you're gonna debunk normocephalic atraumatic next <laughs> <laughs> no he definitely yeah he didn't go that far come on it's not a physical exam I mean, unless this- it says normocephalic atraumatic <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is like in every node template. I mean, every this is just it's clerolicterus. It's just it's like it's just that's what it is. Well, hopefully not every template has the presence except, of it. <laughs> except except it's not. Yeah. So what did Dr. Hoffman know that we all didn't? 
And I really wish I'd been on those rounds, yeah. you know, but yeah, uh, I, what did he know? Like, how did, Yeah, I wasn't thoughtful enough to ask him at the time, and obviously I should have. Um, I think I was just so, my mind was kind of reeling. But, you know, he's classic student of medicine and uh, knew a lot of medical history, and so it would not surprise me uh, if he had, uh, had read a letter that was published in JAMA in December of 1979. Like, that was the kind of, you know, clinician he was, is today even. So this letter was written by two ophthalmologists, and the title really could not be any more to the point. So, so the authors titled their piece, Conjunctival Icterus, Not Scleral Icterus. That, and that's it. Yep, that's uh, scleras can be. So, um, so the two <laughs> authors, um, they note that they had studied histological sections of globes uh, from many, many patients with jaundice. And they, they wrote in this letter, uh, and I'll quote, uh, we find that of all the ocular tissues, the least amount of bilirubin staining is seen in the scleral stroma, end quote. And in one of the cases they report in this like very short letter, um, they note that the bilirubin on the patient, the serum bilirubin was 60 milligrams per deciliter. So like that, I think we can all agree that's high. And even at that level, there was no bilirubin in the sclera. So you're saying, Tony, not only is it somewhere else, it's definitively like it's anywhere but the sclera. <laughs> yeah, I mean, based <laughs> it's really not in the sclera. <laughs> yeah, I mean, based on this this one letter, there there are other um, actually there all the reports on this are quite small or are quite short. Yeah, I think there is some at high levels deposition in the sclera, but these two ophthalmologists and all the ones that they saw couldn't find any, and they, but they could find it in other places, which is you know kind of the key point. So where is it, if not in the square? Yeah, so I mentioned this, you know, earlier when I was talking about rounds. Um, and so this is what Dr. Hoffman taught me. Um, and this is what this uh, letter from 1979 uh, indicates. The bilirubin is in the conjunctiva. And more specifically, it's a bulbar conjunctiva that covers the sclera. So it actually makes sense, right, that we can identify jaundice by examining the eye when the thing that's covering the white part turns yellow. The, that white part, that sclera, is now going to appear yellow because its conjunctival coloring has turned yellow. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. But it also makes sense that when you look at it, you'll see like, oh, wow, the sclera are icteric, not realizing that it's, in fact, its outer layer. And why the conjunctiva? Um, yeah, I, th I think there's a few explanations. And there's one that you'll often read about. And then there's, you know, there's a, a few others that may play a role. So you know, Dr. Hoffman taught me one of these explanations. And he, he would often bring this up on rounds because I, I saw I, I heard him make this teaching point other times. So one key thing to know is that when bilirubin deposits in tissues, whether it's the conjunctiva or other tissues, it specifically binds to elastin. So unsurprisingly, Tissues that have high concentrations of elastin are more apt to become jaundice. And so, you know, one example of that is, of course, the conjunctiva. There were reports of this, you know, dating ba way back to 1930. And, you know, the article that reports on this is in German. Uh, and I've used Google Translate uh, a few times to read sections of it. And it, do, it does, in fact, mention how elastin seems to bond uh, the bilirubin. And, and that the conjunctiva of the eye are the, the key part. So, so that's explanation one, right? So the conjunctiva have a lot of bilirubin, bilirubin binds to elastin. Um, but I think the other explanation is that the conjunctiva has a rich vasculature. And so as the bil serum bilirubin increases, the blood that's delivered to that vascular conjunctiva has molar bilirubin in it. And as, you, as a comparator, the sclera are relatively avascular. So they just don't have that same vascular flow of blood with uh, high levels of bilirubin. 
And there's actually one really cool case report that helps to demonstrate the fact that it's the conjunctiva and not the sclera that become icteric. In this case study, uh, fortunately for the patient, did not require removal of the eyeball. They were able to make these observations while the eyes were still in their head. Impressive. Um, and so what happened was th- th- this was a patient who had really, really bad um, pancreatitis. And as a result, uh, probably gallstone pancreatitis, you know, had some conjunctival icterus. And the patient would often be lying on one side. And as a result, the dependent part of their eyeball where there was chemosis, which is just sort of edema of the conjunctiva, that area would become icteric. And the, the part that wasn't dependent was remained white. And so you would look at it and you'd be like, wow, the sclera on the part of their eyeball that's dependent, that, that sclera appears icteric, but it's actually just the fact that the conjunctiva are adenomous. And it really kind of demonstrates this point that it's the conjunctiva. I don't know if that kind of story makes sense. So things that I've learned from the past two episodes, one, that uh, copper and cholesterol deposits in the eye are not gravity dependent, and that two, bilirubin is. (laughs) Apparently, yes. (laughs) Okay, so just to... It would seem that way. To recap everything that we've said so far. So when we have been, my, you know, whole medical career thus far... I've been saying that I'm seeing scleral icterus, but I'm actually seeing conjunctival icterus. And the reason that I'm seeing that is because, one, the conjunctiva has high blood flow. So when there's more bilirubin in the blood, you see more bilirubin in the conjunctiva. But then, two, that the conjunctiva is really dense in elastin, which is this protein that bilirubin specifically binds to. That's right. Okay. Yep. So why does bilirubin bind to elastin? Do we know? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I when I first read up on this, I you know I wondered the same thing, obviously. And as I thought about the question, I realized you could approach it from a couple different perspectives. You know, one is like a structural perspective, like what is it specifically about elastin that has this affinity for bilirubin, and the other is kind of a teleological perspective, like what purpose does this binding serve the the human body? Like why would we maybe intentionally do this if it's intentional? So structurally, elastin is considered an albuminoid protein, meaning it's kind of albumin-like. I don't know whether or not there's enough similarity between albumin and elastin to explain the binding affinity, but it's possible that that's a a simple explanation structurally. It's albumin-like, so just like albumin binds bilirubin, elastin binds bilirubin. As for the instrumental value, like what what purpose does it serve us? So I wonder, and this is hypothetical, I haven't... This I don't think is borne out by anything, um, but I wonder if the body uses elastin as a place to store excess bilirubin that would otherwise have toxic effects. Mm. So your bilirubin, you know, as the levels increase, it can ex- at some point exhaust the ability of albumin to store it. Right? There's got to be some bilirubin above which all the albumin is there's no albumin available anymore. And the problem is that free bilirubin can be toxic. And frankly, one of the main reasons why albumin binds to bilirubin as it's being transported to the liver for clearance is that free bilirubin can be toxic. And the classic example of this is the hyperbilirubinemia of infants that can lead to cernicterus. And so I wonder, there's no evidence of this, this is just um, conjecture, but I wonder if elastin allows some some sort of a buffer for uh, bilirubin when we reach those levels. And it would 
kind of be unsurprising if this were the case because one of the main tissues that has a lot of elastin are vessels, blood vessels. So it's kind of right there to like hmm. grab the bilirubin as the levels get high and it would otherwise leach into tissues and, and cause problems, for example, like in the brain. I, I don't know if either of those explanations are convincing to you guys. You convinced me. I mean, the structural one, I think especially is if it really is a similar protein to albumin, that, that makes sense that it would bind that it would tend to bind to elastin more easily. And I think the the teleological one, I mean, I guess it makes you wonder, you mentioned endothelium, like where else is bilirubin going to tend to bind? Like where else do we find a lot of elastin in the body that might, you know, kind of sop up all that bilirubin? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, so I mentioned blood vessels and uh, there's some ligaments, like the nuchal ligament, from what I've read, has a, a high amount of elastin. Um, and then the skin has a high amount of elastin. And Dr. Hoffman would make use of this point actually on these physical diagnosis rounds. You know, so he would often ask the students, you know, where they had been taught to evaluate for skin turgor, like, you know, where is someone uh, potentially volume depleted? And, you know, where can we find if their skin turgor is intact? And um, he would often hear uh, from them the upper chest. And I don't know if that's what the two of you were taught, but I, I do remember being taught that on pediatrics. And he would explain that the upper chest is particularly rich in elastin, and, and so it leads to that snapback that you, that you see, and that's why it's a particularly good area of the body to evaluate for skin turgor. Um, and it also, I haven't been able to independently confirm this in the literature reviews that I've done, but I think the upper chest has a tendency to become more jaundiced, for example, than the lower body. Hmm potentially because of the amount of elastin in it. So Tony, I mean, one of the cool things about this is seeing you sort of obviously having learned from and sharing something that you that you learned from a, a treasured mentor. And I, I have to admit, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish that I had been able to be in these teaching rounds. It seems like they were truly I know. just like incredible. Um, but one thing that I'm wondering is, so not everyone other than Dr. Hoffman uh, is clearly reading JAMA letters from 1979. <laughs> um, but if in 1979, we knew that it was, con- it was in the conjunctiva, why are we still calling it sclerolicterus? Right. I mean, like the title could not have been more clear. Were- Conjunctival icterus, not sclerolicterus, <laughs> right? Like, like, come on, guys. Um <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, the, uh, uh, there's a little bit of history to this, so um, I, I, I just want to take us back a little bit to Osler, and then eventually I will answer your question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I promise. Um, so, the, like, the nomenclature around the jaundice of the eye, uh, again, kind of has been changing over the last um, 150 years. So if you go back to, like, the first main text of medicine, uh, you know, Osler's Principles and Practice in Medicine, uh, and there were eight editions of this starting in 19, uh, sorry, starting in 1892. They all defined icterus as, quote, tinting of the skin and conjunctiva. And the first six editions of Cecil's textbook, textbook of medicine, which was kind of the next big textbook of internal medicine, and these were published between 1927 and 1943, they also note that jaundice is localized to the conjunctiva. So they seemed, you know, way ahead of us back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it really wasn't until the 1940s that it became scleral icterus. And what's ironic about this is is that it was based on the same data I mentioned earlier showing that bilirubin binds to elastin. And from what I understand, at that time, it was felt that the sclera were in fact the part of the eye that was rich in elastin, which is why they assumed, oh, if it binds to elastin, we think sclera have a lot of it. It must be the sclera that becomes icteric. Now, 
getting back to your question, you're right. You fast forward to 1979, and we have an article that could be not be any clearer, right? And they cut a lot of eyeballs open to make the point. And yet our language hasn't changed. And, you know, one thing I find interesting about the letter, and maybe this is partly explanatory, is that it's only been cited 13 times. It's kind of sad that in the subsequent 40 years, nothing has changed, despite the fact that, you know, it seems like we've known this for quite some time. So I'm actually going to punt the question back to the two of you, um, based on all you've heard. Like, why do you guys think that scleral scleral icterus can't be beaten down? I think it's the same reason we still call saline normal saline. Yeah. You know, I think old habits are hard to break. And I think once something gets baked into medical culture, it takes a lot of evidence and you know like a groundswelling of support to say like no no we have to this is not right it's we have to do it differently now and it's not earth-shatteringly important that we get this right by the way yeah well icterus it doesn't just come from flying too close to the sun (laughs) anyway (laughs) been saving them for like 20 minutes Okay, so Tony, how are you documenting then if you're not writing scleral icterus? I write conjunctival icterus or I write conjunctival jaundice. It kind of depends on the day. You know, it's worth noting that icterus and jaundice are synonyms. They mean the exact same thing. There's nothing special about the word icterus that localizes to the eye. And for the listeners, if you want to hear Adam Rodman uh, talk eloquently about this, just, you know, send him a a message. And he's got an interesting hypothesis as to why icterus as a term localizes to the eyeball. But I I usually document conjunctival icterus. Most of the time, that's what I write. I I do it in exclamation points and with a parenthetical, (laughs) not scleral icterus. You should cite the 1979 JAMA paper in every note you write. It's not going to increase the impact factor for JAMA, though, if I do that. (laughs) All right. I guess this conversation can last in all day. Uh, Tony, what are your take-home points from all of this? All right. I I only have two, um, uh, and I've mentioned one of them multiple times. First and foremost, it's conjunctival icterus, not scleral icterus. And two, um, uh, of the many reasons why it, uh, Billy Rubin has a propensity to um, go to the conjunctiva, one of them is the fact that Billy Rubin binds to elastin. And elastin is found in other tissues that Billy Rubin binds to. That's all I got. I can safely say that my mind is sufficiently blown. Like, I have just been speaking a falsehood uh, routinely. <laughs> Either if I'm commenting that the sclera are icteric or anicteric, either Well, the one. sclera are, I guess, always in anicteric. <laughs> My entire career. So thank you, Tony. <laughs> you, you can still, you can write, actually, that would be brilliant. Write conjunctival icterus sclera anicteric. You could write that in a note. That's actually true. Yeah. If I say, if I've been saying sclera anicteric, either way, that is true. Right. You, you could say cornea anicteric if you want. Yeah, they are not icteric. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. And as always, uh, I think we learned a lot from each other. (laughs) I certainly uh, did. So thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.